Turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. All right, we are just getting an overview of the Old Testament here. And so we fast forwarded from uh, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments that we looked at last week. Uh, we've, we skipped over how is God and Israel entered into a covenant in chapter 24. As uh, Israel said to God, uh, we will do everything that you asked us to do. And then they were sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb uh, to signify their, their entering into this relationship and we skipped over uh, chapters 25 to 31. It's everybody's favorite bedtime reading. It's the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. All right, of, of all, all the great, wonderful detail put in and how God may dwell near his people. And so today we're going to look at the big story in the golden calf incident. And it's three chapters. It's meant to be read together, which we're not going to do, but we are going to look at the big story here and see how it connects to Jesus and our, and our mission as a church, uh, fo- as followers of Jesus. So let's read our text. We're going to read 33.12 through 34, chapter, uh, verse 9. And so let's read God's word together. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to, to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me, on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord 
descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today in love. It is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this great story of how you showed mercy to, to Israel through Moses, I pray you would give us an even clearer vision of how you've shown us mercy in Christ. And as we do that, that this will be a, another step on the journey of, of you changing us into the image of Jesus, uh, that we too might be gracious, uh, compassionate, slow to anger, a people who keep our promises and are faithful to you. And in doing so, that the world might see that you are with us. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you got to think back to last week. Do you remember what made Israel different from all the nations in the earth as we talked about the law? Right? It was God's presence with them. Uh, that, that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, and that's what priests do as they draw near to God, or really God draws near to them. And, and that as a nation, they would be known as a people among the, the earth. Yahweh the Lord is with them. All right, so we just picked up the story in the aftermath of this golden calf incident when Israel uh, rejected and rebelled against the Lord, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But it's helpful again to listen to what is at stake in this section, right? The whole question that we're going to look at this morning is, God, will you stay with your people now that you have seen what is in their heart, right? When you see that they are a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people, that they, they have a heart that's prone to wander, right? And in chapter 33, the first six verses, I'll, I'll paraphrase here, um, but basically the, the Lord is saying to... Um, <laughs> to Moses, right? This covenant relationship I have with Israel, this intimate relationship that we're supposed to have where they have my smiling face, uh, it's not going to work because they're too stubborn. They're stiff-necked. They don't listen. And so Moses, instead of me being with them, I'll just send you an angel. They'll keep my promises. I'll give you the land. I'll give you power. You'll, you'll be victorious over your enemies. I'll make you successful economically. Uh, you will still be protected and provided for, but it'll be through my angel, not because of my particular presence. Because I'm afraid if I go with you, I will just consume everyone. Because they keep trampling all over our covenant. All right, so just put this in modern terms. Imagine God saying to you, and me. I'll meet all your needs. I'll give you money and power. 
I'll make you comfortable. You'll have success in your job, your family, your bank account, but you won't have my presence. You won't, because you, don't, you won't survive my justice. Right? You'll be happy, healthy, and wise, so to speak, blessed by God through an angel at a distance, but you won't have God's shining face, his personal delight. Right? Over and over again in chapter 33, whenever it says God's presence, it specifically uses the word God's face. Right? You won't have Leviticus. Right? There will be no tabernacle. God won't have his throne in the midst of his people. You can skip over the whole confession of sin part because there won't be the sacrificial system. Right? And so the question is, if God came to you with that deal, would you take it? Right? I think it's fair to say that that's probably one of the more popular understandings of Christianity in our country right now. God, I want your blessings. Your presence, I'm, I'm okay with you keeping at a distance. <laughs> See, Moses is absolutely horrified of that whole prospect, that, that he could be blessed but not have God's presence. And this, you look at verse 15 of chapter 33, Moses says, if your presence isn't going to go with me, don't even bring us up from this place, Mount Sinai. For how shall it be known that we found favor or grace in your sight? And is it not that you going with us that makes us distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Do you hear what Moses said? God, if you're not going to go with us, you might as well leave us in the mountain right here in the desert because a comfortable life, a, ma a material life, right, blessed by God is meaningless if you don't have his presence, his face. And God's mission is at stake because how will the world know him if he is not with them? Unless the world knows they have received grace from this good God. Right? And so this is the challenge that I have, and uh, I, if you're human, you have this challenge too, is do you think of God with that kind of intimate uh, longing for his presence? Right? Do your prayers sound like Moses, where you say, Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. Right? To rather say, I'd rather fail, die, or lose than live without your presence, because life without the Lord with you to use the words of Ecclesiastes, it's meaningless. And so that's the tension of the story in Exodus 32 to 34 that we're going to look at is how will God draw near to a stubborn, selfish, sinful people right, that don't want his presence? And so we're going to look at this through three points. We're going to see the danger of God's presence. We're going to see why we need a mediator and then we get to see God's goodness here in our passage. So let's look at the danger of God's presence here. And in 33.5, God says, If I were going to go with you to Israel, I would consume you. Right? So why is God so angry? Uh, what happened? And so if you look at chapter 32, this is the famous golden calf incident uh, Moses has been up on the Mount Sinai for way too long. He's getting the law, and God is inscribing it with his finger on, the, on the, um, these stone tablets. Moses is getting the instructions 
for the tabernacle, of how he's going to dwell with them. Um, God is, that's what happens at the end of 3118. That's the last note before you get this uh, jarring story of Israel's rebellion is God just finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai and he's getting ready to come down. But apparently it took too long. The people either out of fear of being abandoned or they just, they just say, ah, oh, we don't know about this guy Moses, he's probably dead. And so they come to Aaron, the priest, either against him or to him, we're not sure, but it's a whole crowd saying, uh, make us gods who will go before us. And so Aaron takes their gold, which is meant to be used later in the construction of the tabernacle, that's really important. It's meant to be used for Yahweh, all for God to be with them. And he says, all right, I'll take your gold. And he constructs this, he forms and fashions this golden calf. And they look at this statue of a cow and they say, these are, are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they say, okay, let's party the next day. Let's festival. And that too is important. And all these details are, are you see Israel giving credit to this calf they're supposed to be go to the Lord himself, right? Because what did God tell Israel and Pharaoh that what they were going to do? I want my people to come out of Egypt so that they could worship me and have a feast or a festival to me in the desert. And so that's what Israel does, but not with the Lord, but with a calf, the statue that's lifeless. And so here they are acting like they're eating with the Lord uh, acting like they're, that the Lord has fulfilled their, his promises as he is, but they're giving all the credit to something else. Right? They offer sacrifices that should be for the Lord. They eat and drink. It should be fellowship with the Lord. They sing uh, God's victory. They're, they're dancing. They're playing. Uh, that word play, they're breaking very clear commandments. It has all kinds of innuendo there. And everything is showing you that Israel has seen all of God's miracles, and they're willing, because they can't see him, to give credit to this thing that they made that is now in, the, in their power, so to speak, that they can draw near on their terms. And so what they're doing is acting just like their neighbors. Uh, the neighbors, this was what was so common, is they would make an idol to represent their God and so they wouldn't get close to the God, they would get close to the representation of God, and it was a physical thing, something they could tangibly see or touch, but it was lifeless, right? So Psalm 106.20 says, Israel exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. It's Romans, right? And I know for us modern people, we go, okay, what's the big deal? because we don't feel that offense of idolatry in the same way. And the closest thing I can come up, come up with, and this is painful, but to, to feel the offense God feels, it'd be like you leaving your newlywed spouse for a tryst with an ex, right, returning to your past, and even weirder and more painful, justifying it by calling your ex by the name of your spouse. Right? God is angry. God is hurt. Because Israel is giving themselves away to this counterfeit God, something they've made themselves, pretending like he is with them. And so this is Israel's false story. 
says it's as heartbreaking as Adam and Eve in the garden, but more so because Israel has more knowledge than Adam and Eve did. They already entered into a covenant. They've broken their vows. Right? And what they've done is, as it says in Acts 7, Israel's hearts turn back to Egypt. They're turning back to their ex. Right? When they said, make a golden calf. All because, why? God feels far off. He feels distant. He feels unseeable and unapproachable. And so let's bring this down to where we live. Where are you and I tempted to turn when God feels far away? Right? What, what bad habits that aren't um, Jesus' ways that you have in the past that still have their enslaving claws in you? Right? What did you love before Jesus that you still love that you don't want to give up because it's too precious to you? And you do that specifically because life is hard and you feel abandoned like God is far away. Right? Those things would be your golden calves, uh, your idols, your, your competing loves. Right, I'm going to do a Presbyterian thing and recommend a book. If you haven't read Tim Keller's book on idolatry, Counterfeit Gods, it's in the library. Uh, it's quite good. But these idols, what they are is anything that is more important to you than the God who made you and loves you, according to Tim Keller. Um, or the, w- the way we're talking about it, anything that you seek to give you that only what God can give, because right? that's what Israel's doing. Right? They're saying, calf, right, golden cow, give me what the Lord should do for me. And at the same time, these idols aren't harmless. They end up ruling over us and causing all kinds of harm and misery in our lives. See, this is why God's presence is dangerous for idolaters like us. Because what he demands from every human being is absolute, perfect, covenant loyalty. Because what is the the second commandment? Make no idols... um, before my face, before me, in my presence. I don't want unfaithfulness in my presence. And so he's angry. That's, that's where, where we are in our text. He responds to Israel. And he's still up on, this is still up on the Mount Sinai, right? He sees his people from afar. This whole thing God sees. And he says, they've quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. And now, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I'm going to consume them. And he basically says to Moses, I'm ready to start over with you. I'll multiply your offspring like the stars. I'll make you a new Abraham. Right? See, God's presence is dangerous because every human being does not have that ability to be, to be faithful to the covenant perfectly because our hearts are drawn back to Egypt, to the things we're enslaved to. And that sets up, as we see Israel's rebellion, uh, that sets up why we need a mediator like Moses. Because we need God's presence with us. That's what makes us distinct in the world. But, but he's terrifying because of our own sin. So we need a mediator. 
And so before looking at what Moses does to pray for and, and, and uh, advocate for Israel, it's good to issue a caution here, right? It's really easy to read through this narrative, through the golden calf story, and just misapply it to us today as if we are Israel in the desert at Mount Sinai. Right? Maybe you've had this thought. Perhaps God's anger, his wrath, his justice burns hot when I screw up and sin and go back to my idols. And then as we drown in our guilt, fear, and shame, we wonder, is this how God sees me? After I fail, right? Is God that mad when I go back to my idols that he looks at me and says, you know what, I'm ready to move on and start fresh with someone else? And so it's really helpful so that you don't do that It's to clarify, one, you're not an ancient Israelite, neither am I. You're not in this particular historical moment at the foot of Mount Sinai without a tabernacle yet. That's really important. There's no sacrificial system set up for sin. And we're not supposed to draw that straight line because our mediator is not Moses, it's Jesus. All of God's wrath already fell on Christ on the cross so that he might do that good work of completing what he's begun, of transforming you into one degree of his image to the next. And he doesn't stop. Right? God is not content until he burns out the impurities of your unfaithfulness until you see him face to face. Because Jesus took God's wrath for you. So we're in a better place. We'll talk about that more. It can also be tempting to read this and watch, right, you read the text, and Moses comes down the mountain famously, and he he sees uh, Israel frolicking, breaking commandments, and he, right, you probably picture Charlton Heston, right, he just chucks down the the stone tablets in anger, prophetically, really, it's showing how God feels, perhaps some of his own, Moses has anger issues, Um, but it's really easy to say, well, if Moses and God are angry at idolatry, we can feel justified in raging against all the evil out there in the world. Right? It's really easy to do that and say, look at those crazy idolaters playing, frolicking, doing whatever they want, breaking God's commandments. How dare they? And then we want to join Jesus and just flip over tables, call people names. That's not what this text is for. Because right, who is God upset with? Is he looking at Egypt? Is he looking at the nations? No, he's, he's talking. This is, this is an intimate conversation between God and his covenant people, Israel. Right? The people that he has set his affection on who have betrayed him by taking idols into their heart. Right? You could put it this way. If my neighbor sins against me, right? even, or, or even my friends, right? It's going to hurt, but the the sins that are the most painful are the ones that are the closest uh, when they're family, Uh, right? If it's my wife or my kids, someone that I'm in this intimate covenant relationship with, it hurts a lot more because of the nature of God's relationship. See, God is talking to Israel, and he has a beef with them in this particular historical moment. 
And what they need is a mediator, someone who will stand in the gap between God and them. And that's where Moses shines, and it's going to help us see Jesus here. Because Moses goes to work over the next chapter, just pleading and praying over and over again, Lord, relent from your anger. It's the Hebrew word repent, turn. Take these people to be your inheritance, delight in them. That's astounding because you remember Moses when he started this job, he wanted nothing to do with God and his people. In fact, he had five objections. He said, God, who am I? I'm a nobody. I can't do this. And he said, what if they, what if they come and say, who are you? Right? I barely know you. This is Exodus 3. And then he asks, well, what if they don't believe me? And finally, <laughs> he says, Lord, I just can't do it. I'm no good with working. No good with words. I'm no good at talking. And then lastly, and it's the first time God gets angry in the Bible, actually, is when Moses says, no, send someone else. And do you know here in Exodus 32 to 34 how many times is Moses prays for and intercedes for Israel? Five times. Because right? now Moses, this priestly figure who's able to draw near to God, he's in God's presence on a mountain, and he's crying out, God, will you forgive your people? Right? And he uses all kinds of uh, argumentation, right? It's, Lord, what will the world think of your, rep- your reputation if you set them free from Egypt just to smoke their bacon in the desert? Right? What are they going to say? And then he also says, don't you remember your covenant promise that you swore by yourself to bless Israel? You promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. It uses Israel's name uh, that God changed Jacob to Israel. That you swore by yourself to bless them. Right? See, Moses keeps pleading. He's a mediator. He's standing in the gap. He's crying out, saying, yeah, they deserve your justice. Show the mercy. Right? And we do see justice come down. This is an important part of the story. Right? When Moses comes down and he gets angry and he throws the tablets and he says, everybody who's for the Lord, come stand with me. And there are those who clearly don't want to be with the Lord or the Lord to be with them. And that's when the Levites, the priests, rise up and there's about 3,000 men killed with a sword because the wages of sin is death. And it also says um, that the Lord struck the people with a plague. We don't know the damage or what it did, but judgment fell. Right? And it's in the midst of all this madness, this, this hurt, this covenant judgment that Moses goes even further than saying, Lord, change your mind. He comes to the Lord and says, you know what? These people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, please blot my name out of the book that you have written. Now we're in holy ground. Moses says, if you're not going to forgive them, take me, take my life in their place. The Lord says no, (laughs) because Moses isn't worthy. Uh, But it's now a category, isn't it? In In the Old Testament, it is a category that perhaps someone will die for the sins of another. It's just a good note on how to read the story of the Old Testament. It keeps adding image upon image. And we already saw Isaac, the the obedient, loved son, 
going up the mountain to die for someone's sins. Um, and now we can add Moses, the pleading priest, to, to this image of what the Messiah has to do. He's got to deal with God's stubborn, stiff-necked people and their wandering hearts. Well, chapter 33 ends, as Moses says, take us to be your own. Renew the covenant. And the Lord says, I will do this specifically. This is important. I will do this for you, Moses. Because you have found favor and grace, or grace, that's the word grace, in my eyes. And so that's the portrait. Israel's forgiven, they're protected, they're guarded, all through Moses' praying and interceding on their behalf, and God says, I will be with them because of you, Moses. Right? And so, just as Israel needed a human mediator, uh, an intercessor, an advocate, um, to go up the mountain to talk to God and plead for a sinful, idolatrous people, that's what we need too. We need a mediator. Spiritually, we're no different than Israel in that sense. We, we're idolaters. Right? And that leads to point three of, of needing to see God's goodness. And this will lead us to the table here. Right? So here's what we've seen. I've, I've called this sermon Seeing God's Goodness about wanting his presence with you, but also recognizing the danger of having God with you, knowing what your heart is like and my heart is like. And so as you've seen this portrait so far, this is the God that we're calling to be with you. And so the question I think it's good to ask is how does this portrait of God fit with your understanding of his character? We saw God's justice. His anger, people died by the sword. He struck them with a plague. And it's the same language used to describe what he did to Egypt. In other words, Israel was acting like Egyptians, so he treated them like Egyptians. He gave them justice. We also saw God's mercy and forgiveness. I mean, think about how horrific this betrayal is. And yet, for Moses' sake, he swears to forgive their uh, it's specific words. Their, their trespasses, their iniquity, and their sin. The things they did on purpose, <laughs> uh, their nature, that they're going to do this again, that's iniquity, uh, and the way that even when they try and do it right and they get it wrong. Right? He's forgiving all of that for Moses' sake, to be with them. Right? Do you have a portrait of God who would repent, uh, relent, sorry, there we go, to turn from his anger? to turn from anger to mercy, to say, Lord, have mercy on that person. Us reform people, it makes us uncomfortable. All right. But this is the God who is. And once Moses hears God swear to take them for his inheritance, to go with them, that's when Moses says, okay, Lord, show me your glory. And I think what's going on here is Moses wants evidence. I want proof that you're going to be with me. Show me who you are. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and, and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness. The Hebrew word tov could also be translated beauty. Right? 
think there's an overlapping thing here. That to see God's glory is to be gripped by his goodness and his beauty in his character, in who he is. Right? I know glory is one of those mystical religious words. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around, but goodness, we understand goodness. Right? Someone who's good. <laughs> right? <clears throat> to see God's glory is to see God's goodness and beauty, and to see God's goodness and beauty is to see God's glory. And so that's what happens as the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock because no one can see God and live. And we don't really, it starts to describe God in all kinds of human terms. But we know that um, right, to, to see God's face is an intimate picture. Moses is saying, I want to see you. I want to have, right? The age of Zoom church, we know face-to-face relationships, that, that's what's best. And that's when the Lord passes before Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are the most quoted and alluded to uh, verses throughout the rest of the Old Testament, remembering who God is as he showed, revealed himself to Moses. All right, and there's all these wonderful attributes that could, each could be their own sermon. Uh, Brandon did that in Sunday school. It's, it's on our YouTube channel if you want to go, go deeper. But there's two things that I think this highlights that are helpful. You need to see God's steadfast uh, loyal, never giving up love, right? For his covenant people, and it expresses itself in grace, compassion, and forgiveness. This is who God is, right? And we also see God's anger. You can't, you, you can't avoid it, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, right? That he's still a God of justice, Right? And in the Old Testament, it's just going to feel contradictory until you get to Jesus, uh, where he says, I forgive sin, but I won't clear the guilty. You go, how does that work? You don't see that clearly until you get to Jesus. But overwhelmingly, the balance that Moses sees and that, that is revealed to us here, what is, what is the balance weighted towards in this text? you hear a lot more about God's grace, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness, loyal love than you do his justice. Right? Let that shape your view of the Old Testament. Right? Our view of the Old Testament, yeah, he's old and cr- he's just an old grump, curmudgeon. Right? Never happy. No, just the God who is, his delight is to show steadfast love and mercy. Right, as the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it, if we are going to know the name of God and see him as he is, let us know him by the names he proclaims. And to see the gospel or see God's glory and that it especially shines brightest in God's mercy. Right? Or John Owen, when he's reading this text, he says God's justice is mentioned at the end of this passage for those who would despise grace. 
right? So for you and I to experience God's goodness, to see his glory, to be enraptured by his beauty, it's to experience the grace, compassion, his, his steadfast love and faithfulness that he keeps his promises and he promises to stay with you. And the effect on Moses when he, when he had this interaction on the mountain with God, he came down the mountain, remember, and his face is shining so bright that everybody around him says, stay away from me, you remind me of God. <laughs> they can't get close. And so Moses covered his face with a veil. So what do we get from this story as God forgives and for Moses' sake? Uh, what mercy and goodness and glory that Moses and Israel experience, this is for us as Christians, you're meant to compare what we have to Jesus. That's how you read this, that we have better. Right? So what happens when you sin as a Christian? Right? When you sin. When we turn back to Egypt, back to the loves that made the mess of our lives in the first place, what does the gospel say? My little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's 1 John 2. Because he is the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the world. All right. It's not till you get to Jesus that you see why God didn't accept Moses' offer to die in his place to die for Israel because it was Jesus the, the Messiah that was the plan all along who would look at us look at you after you've broken God's heart putting all of your affection on the things God's given you instead of recognizing the giver and he says in the aftermath let me die in your place because I love you and through his death which is a propitious sacrifice. <laughs> it's a propitiation, and it's a big theological term to mean we are made pleasing in God's sight because of Jesus' perfect obedience. You have an advocate with the Father. You are pleased, pleasing in God's sight because Jesus is on the mountain, so to speak, <laughs> in the heavens with God interceding on your behalf. All right, and... And that's the beauty of it, that when Jesus rose from the dead and, and he ascended into heaven and goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, this is a key part of the Christian faith, is that you have someone better than Moses in God's presence, a permanent priest pleading on the behalf of the church for you. So you can draw near and not be afraid. It's the writer of the Hebrews will say in chapter 7, 25, Jesus... God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus because he always lives. He's alive. And he lives to make intercession for them. And then what happens? Uh, like Moses, you get to draw near. You get to see God's goodness, his beauty, his glory. And because you're in Christ, all that goodness shines on you <laughs> so that the world can see that God is with you. Right? And that's what 
Paul will say in, in Corinthians that we all with unveiled face now behold the glory of the Lord, thinking about Exodus, and we now are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And all this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. The Spirit is with you. So gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as you experience this in Jesus, you start, God starts chiseling away those false loves and starts forming you into his character. Right. So, how do you apply this? And as we come to the table, this is who we are as a church. Right? One, you've got to ask, have you had that experience where you know Jesus is your permanent priest who gave himself up for you because he loves you? That you need a mediator. You can't just run into God's presence without someone to, to stand between you and, and the living God. Maybe you think about our, our mission in the community, what, what's going to make us as a church unique is we're going to be a people that say, unless Jesus is with us by his spirit, Lord, we can't do anything. That's what makes us distinct in the world, is Jesus says to you, as I send you out into the world to make disciples, is lo, I will be with you until the very end of the age. Right? That's our distinctness as a church because of what Jesus has done. Out of all the peoples of the earth that don't know him, and that distinctness shows up f to our neighbors as they see the image of God in us. Right? Our grace, our graciousness, um, our willingness to forgive, our anger. Right? We get angry at things that are not well. But we're slow to anger. Right? We're not, our anger isn't just on a, a trigger. Um, our faithfulness, our willingness to stay when life gets hard. Right. Do you see that those attributes reflected and, and God going to work on those in you? That's, that's a sign to the world that God is at work. Something to pray for. Right. I'll end with this, this story here. Uh, George MacDonald wrote a great story called The Light Princess. Uh, it's a children's story. He loved writing stories for little kids. and uh, The main characters are often princesses. But the light princess is this little girl who was born weightless, right? And so much so that when, when uh, she would be handed off to the nursery, they would pretty much treat her like a balloon, right? Because if she was just laughing at everything, she was always happy. She had no substance to her. But if they didn't hold on to her, she would just float away because she was too light. And that's her story as she grows up. And it's not until she doesn't become a person of substance, a person of of weight, right, this is the plan, words with glory, um, until she meets a prince, a prince who loves her, right? A prince who loves her at great cost to himself, and that's how the story ends, is, is in order to save the kingdom and to save this young lady's life, the prince sees her and says, I love you and I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And when she sees that and she's weeping tears of sorrow, her feet start touching the ground. <laughs> she becomes human again. Right? And, and it gives a dim picture of what the gospel is, is that when, when you see someone who loves you the way Jesus loves you, pleading on your behalf, 
You no longer float above this material world. You become a person with boots on the ground in the midst of conflict, willing to show grace and mercy, to show other people Jesus, to offer them what you have received. May he give you the strength and presence to do so. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to the table, I pray you would show us Jesus. Um, you would show us that you are with us. You would convict us of our sin. And that through this love, draw us away from the loves that cause us harm. And so may we uh, leave here rejoicing in the gift of your, your gospel as we behold your glory, uh, tasting the broken body of our Savior and the, the shed blood of our King, uh, that we might know that you love us more than we can imagine. So do all these things and more than we can ask or imagine. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.